Well, this letter, this little letter, it packs a big punch. Paul, he's writing from a prison. We don't know exactly what this is describing. Maybe it's the imprisonment that we're going to see as Paul, as Paul goes on his journey at the end of Acts. Perhaps it's a temporary imprisonment that he experienced in Ephesus. We're not quite sure the circumstances of his imprisonment. But Paul is writing to the house churches of a city named Colossae, where uh, they were likely planted. These churches were likely planted during the, uh, the missionary ministry season that we just got to look at uh, from Paul. So it's, it's timely that we look at this. Paul was doing ministry in Acts 19 from Ephesus. He was preaching the good, good news, the gospel of Jesus from Ephesus. And it says in Acts 18 and 19 that the whole region, uh, what we know of as Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey, the whole region heard the good news. And God was doing powerful works through, uh, through the Apostle Paul. And one of the believers that Paul led to Christ, his name was Philemon. Say Philemon with me. Philemon. Good. You got it. And he lived nearby in Colossae. And he hosted a small group. We got any small group hosts and leaders here in the room? Yeah, all right. We love our small groups. It's where we get to feel and experience intimate community. And so uh, being a, a small group church host or leader, Philemon, he had a decent house likely to host from. And, and, and also this. And this tells us a little bit about the era in which uh, Paul was writing. Uh, Philemon owned slaves. Now, before we dig into this, we have to understand something very significant. Slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire does not equal, it's not the same as slavery that we know of here in America. The slavery in the first century it wasn't racially based, uh, and aside from captives of war, it didn't subjugate whole groups of people, but it was a, a widespread economic system. And there were all types of slaves. Some were very poor and, and some were indeed mistreated. But others had degrees and great levels of, of power. And people often became slaves because they could not afford to live on their own or they had to pay up back the debt that they couldn't, they couldn't pay back, the debt that they owed. However, even though these were very different compared to uh, black slavery in the South and in America and, and the slavery of the first century, uh, people were still considered property. The New Testament describes how followers of Jesus, in fact, uh, who were slaves and masters, should behave toward one another in this man-made system. But friends, I want you to hear clearly, the Bible never, ever condones human slavery. What we see here is Paul speaking into a situation that existed all throughout the Roman Empire. This isn't something that they could vote on. This is not something that they could stand on a protest in Rome. It was something that Paul is saying, in the light of, the, of this huge system that we live under, here's how I want you to treat one another. So we come back to Philemon. Philemon was probably a, a fairly wealthy man, a small group host, uh, and, and one of his slaves was named Onesimus. Say Onesimus with me. Onesimus. All right, get it down. Now, we don't know the whole story because the Bible doesn't tell us, but it's, it's likely that Onesimus and Philemon had, Philemon had a lot of conflict, and Onesimus left Philemon's home. Now, do, did he run away? We're not sure. Uh, there was a severe punishment for slaves who ran away. Uh, was he given permission to leave? Perhaps. Uh, but we do know, according to verses 18 and 19 of Philemon, they indicate that Onesimus may have perhaps stolen something from Philemon, or he still owed Philemon a large debt. But God is good. And in his providence, Onesimus tracks down Philemon's mentor, the Apostle Paul, while Paul was in prison. 
Perhaps it was a, a miraculous encounter that Onesimus was running away, but God in his providence led Onesimus' steps right to Paul. We don't know for sure, but we do know that Paul meets Onesimus, Philemon's slave, this Philemon that he loves so much. And here's the beauty of, of, of God's providence. Paul leads Onesimus to faith in Jesus. Onesimus repents of his sin and trusts in Jesus Christ. Now we come with the predicament. Now here Onesimus is, and, and Onesimus has given his life to Jesus, and he's serving Paul, and Paul's like, okay, what do I do about this situation? I've got Onesimus here, he's, his whole status has been transformed spiritually through the power of the gospel of Jesus, but I know that he and Philemon are on the outs. What do I do? Well, we know that Paul writes a couple of letters. He writes actually the letter of Colossians. So if you want to get an idea of the letter that accompanied the one we just read this morning, you can read Colossians. In fact, it says in Colossians 4, verses 7 through 9, that Paul sends a letter to the house churches in Colossae, to all those small groups there, including Philemon's house church, his small group. And he sends us by his fellow minister, Tychicus, but he also sends Tychicus with someone else. Who's that someone else? He sends back Onesimus. Paul even calls Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother. And he tells Philemon, he's one of you. He tells the people of Colossae, he's one of you. Wow. This is going to get really interesting, right? Could you imagine that moment where you see Philemon and Onesimus lock eyes and you think, I heard about this conflict. I heard about what happened. How is this all going to go down? So Paul knows, what, he knows the conflict. He sends this personal letter that we just read to Philemon, as well as to address this very predicament. This letter is personal, but it, it wasn't private. It was actually read by multiple people. We see that there are several sub-addressees here in the letter, right? It wasn't private, but it was personal. And what Paul is doing is that he's helping the church at Colossae, and specifically Philemon, see a great demonstration of the good news of Jesus that Paul preached, that they were preaching, that they had given their very lives to, and in which they had all believed. So let's dive into it. What's this little letter all about? Let's take a look again at Philemon 6. Philemon 6, not chapter 6, verse 6, just one chapter, okay? Philemon 6. If you want to get an idea of what are Paul's letters about, just trace the prayers. It's usually going to tell you what the letter is about. Here we get it in Philemon 6. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul writes this, the sharing of your faith. That word is in the Greek koinonia. Say it with me. Koinonia. Man, you know Greek. That's pretty good. That's the word for sharing here in Philemon 6. It's the idea here is it's, it's this association, a communion, fellowship. It's a close relationship. It's a partnership. And in fact, in verse 17, Paul uses the exact same word. He says, Philemon, if you consider me your, your, your koinonia, your, your partner, if you consider me your partner, it's a partnership. But, but where did this idea of sharing, where, where did it come from? We see it here in, in the ESV, the English Standard Version, and the English translation that we often use here at Fairfax Bible Church. Uh, this idea of sharing, it kind of, in your mind, it, it does for me, it, it thinks of like sharing your faith. Like if I know somebody who needs to hear the gospel, I share my faith with them. And you think of evangelism. 
The King James Version, it talks about a communication of faith. And that's probably where this, this translation sharing comes from. In fact, the New King James says sharing, but, but the, uh, the New American Standard calls it fellowship. The New International Version calls it partnership. And I think these are much better renderings. So when we see here this, the, the key verse to this, I hope that the fellowship, the partnership, of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that's in us for the sake of Christ. This koinonia for believers, it's, it's a participation within the human experience of communion with the living God himself. That's what it means. It flows out of our communion with God that we share that binds us together with Christ. If you're in Christ, if you put your faith in him, you are eternally and internally spiritually related to God the Father through Jesus, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Friends, that is amazing. That's amazing. You have a fellowship, a partnership, a communion with the God of the universe through the gospel if you are a believer in Jesus today. But not only does this communion, this fellowship, link us to God, it links us together in this koinonia this fellowship, this partnership. Now we see that this koinonia was put on display in Acts chapter 2, and we, we talked about months ago, these believers, the first believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the koinonia, to the fellowship, to the partnership. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's what happens when we experience this internal spiritual koinonia with God and with one another. It ends up spilling out Followers of Jesus, the Messiah, they were baptized in the name of Jesus, and that internal, eternal reality had spilled out of their hearts into the everyday stuff of life. They shared their visible lives together because they were linked together spiritually and eternally. So I think Philemon is really this. He's doing us a favor. We ask a question usually at the end of the message every week. What's that question? What does this mean for Monday, right? It's just a summary statement that we have to say, hey, we just heard scripture. How am I going to respond to it? Whether it's faith or love or worship or obedience or repentance or whatever, how am I going to respond to this message? Philemon is a, it's clear. What does this mean for Monday, Philemon? You are enjoying fellowship. We are partners together, and Onesimus has been brought into that. So what does this mean for you now, Philemon, as I send him back to you? And here's our big idea this morning. A while we get there. Here's our big idea. Our fellowship activates the faith we share in Jesus. Our koinonia, our partnership, our togetherness energizes, puts to work, activates the common faith that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's read that Philemon 6 prayer one more time together. Let's, let's actually read it out loud together. Can we go back to that last slide? Philemon 6. We get back there? Now let's, let's read it together. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Amen. Our fellowship activates the faith we share in Jesus. We're going to see this in three ways about our fellowship. We'll move through them quickly. First of all, we'll see that our fellowship flows from love, not law. Secondly, we'll see that our fellowship turns foes into family. Thirdly, we'll see that our fellowship bears the cost for community. So let's take a look at the first one. Our fellowship flows from love, not from law. 
Verse 8, Paul, after he prays this, he says, finally, this is what I want you to do. I, I got something that I'm requiring of you. In fact, I'm not requiring it. The gospel that we have partnership in, it requires it uh, uh, from you. Well, what is the requirement? We'll get to that in just a few moments. But he's saying, I could require this from you. But I'm not going to appeal to my authority as an apostle, nor my authority as your mentor and spiritual father. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to appeal to something external outside of you. What does he say instead? Verse 9, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. There's something internal, internal with inside of us, Philemon. Inside you, inside me, and now exists inside Onesimus. And that's what I want to appeal to. It's so much stronger. It's so much richer. It's so much deeper. If you've been around Bible teaching, you probably know the word for love that Paul is using, agape. It's this love that God has. It's the same word that's used in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He, it's this love, this internal connection that we share. And so Paul is saying, I'm not going to appeal to a command. I could, I could give you all this of commands, Philemon. I'm not going to appeal to my authority. Though I hold all the authority over your life, man, I'm your spiritual mentor. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to serve you instead. And I'm going to appeal to the spirit and the koinonia and the partnership that exists inside of you and inside of me because of our connection to God. And that greatest ideal, the greatest ideal of all is love. Paul says, I'm, I'm sending you, in verse 12, I'm sending you my favorite part. It's almost as if he's saying, I have grown to love Onesimus because the link that we have so much, I'm sending back to you my very heart. It's like I say, I'm sending my child back to you, this precious and beloved brother. you got to see this. you got to see this love that I have for him. Could you love him too, Philemon, rather than me dictate or command you what is required? Verses 13 to 14, we see that Paul says, there was a part of me, Philemon, that wanted to keep him back for my own benefit. He's so useful to me. In fact, the the name Onesimus means useful, but because he had fled from Philemon, he'd become useless to Philemon. But he's saying now, he's playing on this name, he says he's come back and he's useful to me, and now I want to send him back to you, but I would have loved to keep him, but I didn't keep him for this reason. If I had kept him, Philemon, that would have forced your hand. You would have said, well, there's nothing else I can do. He belongs to Paul now. What can I do? He says, no, but I want to send him back to you. Maybe Paul is is kind of implying here, I'm sending him back to you so that you can send him back to me. But I'm I'm putting the ball in your court, Philemon, because there's something more powerful than the law. There's something more powerful than earthly authority. There's something even more powerful than apostolic authority or discipleship, mentor-mentee relationship. And that's this, that we've been linked together because of the love that we've received through our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul wants Philemon to put his faith into action. And the basis of that action does not flow from a law, it flows from love. Doug Moore writes this, he says, by appealing to Philemon on, Philemon on the basis of love, Paul raises the stakes and puts even greater pressure on Philemon. Obeying a command can be onerous. Sometimes it stinks, right? Obeying just a command. But it's rather straightforward. It can be accomplished begrudgingly. Uh, but, but he doesn't want Philemon to do that. 
Paul puts the ball into Philemon's court. He's in effect testing the depth of Philemon's love and the extent of his understanding of Christian koinonia, of partnership, fellowship. He must not only do what Paul wants him to do, he must also do it for the right reasons. And this is what's vital in this matter. Paul suggests this, it's not the demands of society, but it's the demands of the new society, the community of faith. Now, I, I don't know about you, but raising kids, this has been a great illustration for me. I, I remember early on when my kids would, would get into fights with one another. It almost never happened, I guess. Uh -huh. <laughs> it happened from time to time. And if you've worked with kids, I, I led kids' ministry for, for a season in my life, and there would be these two kids, and they, they'd be fighting with one another. They were young. How do you get them to be reconciled? Often you had to grab their hands, bring them together, you need to look each other in the eye and say you're sorry, right? And you've probably seen it with kids, right? All right, I'm sorry. All right, whatever. Yeah, okay. Okay, I'll hug you. Yeah, whatever. Okay, let me go back and do what I'm doing, right? And you force them into that mode because you want to teach them this is the right thing to do, but you can see it way deep down in their hearts. They don't care. They just, they just want to get through this activity. I want to go back to the playground. I want to go back outside. I want to get back to doing whatever it was that I'm doing, but I'll go through the motions just to appease you. And Paul is saying, I'm appealing to something much higher than that, much greater than just a mere external obligation. I'm appealing to your heart, Philemon. Not from a law, but from love. In fact, Paul writes in, in one of his other letters, Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Guess what that word is? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This very letter that was sent with Philemon, Paul writes in Colossians 3.14, he says this, Above all these, put on what? Love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I, I love it so much. Philemon is the what does it mean for Monday for the book of Colossians. Put on love, and Paul says, I'm appealing to you, Philemon, because I know that we are a fellowship in this great thing called the gospel. That's why I appeal to love. I want to ask you today, do you feel like sometimes your heart gets cold toward others? Does your heart get cold toward even your spiritual family, maybe your biological family? Oh, friends, there isn't a command that we could give you as leaders of the church to say, you've got to do this now. No, but we want to join Paul toward one another and say, oh, that we would grow in our love for one another. That we would pray, Lord, my heart feels cold toward my brother and sister. Would you enlarge my heart? Would you soften my heart? Because there isn't any command or law on the planet that can compare with the great truth that I've received God's love and I want to send it out. Love. Love. That's where this koinonia flows from. Secondly, this koinonia, this fellowship, turns foes into family turns foes into family. We see that in verses 15 through 16. I love what Paul says. He says, perhaps this is why he was parted from you, that he would come to me so that I could send him back to you, not as your monster any longer, Philemon, not as your slave anymore, Philemon, but as a beloved brother, a beloved brother. He's writing, Philemon, you and Onesimus, you can't look at each other with old eyes any longer. Your primary, primary relationship as master and slave, it, it, it's no longer the primary relationship that you have. You are family now, Philemon. 
Jesus has purchased you both and called both of you uh, into his family so that you can address him both as father. What a beautiful, beautiful thing that we could call our creator and God father. Amen. This is powerfully transformative. And this new status from, from bondservant to brother, beloved brother, it's enacted by God. He's the one who turns his foes, us, into his family through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But this new fellowship that we enjoy through faith in him, this new status that we have, it has to be activated by how we treat one another. Again, the, the letter that accompanied Philemon, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes this, stop lying to one another. See, that you put off the old self, and you think about Philemon and Onesimus, that old self was this master monster of religion. You put that off, right, with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. But it's not just an individual new self. It's a new self that links us together in how we see one another. Because he writes in verse 11 of Colossians 3, here, here in this fellowship, in this partnership, in the church that's linked us to God and one another, here there is not Greek and Jew. Take away the ethnic and cultural boundaries. Uh, there's not their circumcised or uncircumcised. The Jew and Gentile division is gone. There's not barbarian, skipping, and slave or free. It's gone. Why? Because Christ is all and in all. This relationship that we have through Jesus can turn even foes into family. Why? Because it's the primary, supreme, most glorious relationship that any single one of us has. We have been saved by our God. We've been put into his family. And we used to be his enemies and his foes. And in fact, he used to be one of others' foes. But he's put us into his family. It's this relationship that is so incredibly fundamental. Paul writes, put on the new self. And it's our call as, as those just like the Colossians and those just like Philemon. We must make our faith active through our fellowship, through the gospel, this partnership. This koinonia in the gospel of Jesus. This is our supreme relationship. This is our supreme relationship. I just think about this for a moment. I, I love my wife dearly. I was just joking before we came in. I overmarried big time. <laughs> I outkicked my coverage. I, my wife is she's wonderful. Um, she's precious. That's the most significant earthly relationship that I have here. The most significant earthly relationship. I have, and guess what? It's even more significant than that. The relationship that we have with this spiritual family. You know why? Because someday, uh, you know, my wife and I, uh, we're not going to be husband and wife anymore. We're just brother and sister in the kingdom of God. We're going to be there together worshiping around the throne. And we're all together in this glorious, beautiful family. That's what I love about my kids. Like, they call me dad. I call them son or daughter. But you know what is the most precious thing I can say about them? That they would call me brother. I call them brother and sister. This is what it means to be in this koinonia. It's the most significant relationship that we have. But friends, sin, sin, including slavery, including political differences, even war can threaten to undo this family relationship. I was just reading in, uh, I found this online, the Encyclopedia of Virginia on the family life during the Civil War. It says this, 
Political divisions during the Civil War back in the uh, 19th century, political divisions sometimes compounded the separations experienced by families. Now that doesn't exist today, right? Regions with high unionist con concentrations, such as Western Virginia, witnessed the division of households on opposing sides of the war's divide, pitting father against son, husband against wife, and even off-sided brother against brother. As one Virginian noted of his own family division, there are thousands of families in the same situation. These families included some of Virginia's most prominent Confederate leaders. Confederate General Thomas jo uh, J. Stonewall Jackson became estranged from his Unionist sister, while J.E.B. Stewart, the famed Confederate cavalryman, urged his wife, Flora Stewart, to change their son's name so that he no longer bore the moniker of his Unionist father-in-law, Philip St. George Cook. Change his name. Estrangement occurred to for Virginians, who, Virginians whose loyalty did not transfer to the Confederacy after the state seceded in April 1861. Union General George H. Thomas was a slaveholder from Southampton County whose family had been forced to escape into the woods during the Nat Turner Uprising in 1831. But when he decided to remain in the United States Army with the Union in 1861, his family objected and cut off contact with him. He later reconciled with his brothers, but his sisters remained estranged from him until his death. Just an illustration for us, friends. That family, and above all, our spiritual family, can be threatened and fractured by politics, by social class, by economics, by skin color and culture, by language, by war. Oh, friends, this is the most special and supreme relationship that we have to one another. As I look out at you, those of you that are followers of Jesus Christ, we're family. We're partners. We have koinonia together. When you look around this room, we're family together. Think about all the threats that we've seen. Just, in the, just take the last three years. Face masks or no face masks. Vaccinations or no vaccinations. Black Lives Matter or no Black Lives Matter. Oh, friends, we've seen so many things that have been dividing us. But praise be to God that the gospel of Jesus and the fellowship and the koinonia that we have with him and with, with one another is the most supreme relationship that we have and it can turn even foes into family. Oh friends, I want to exhort you today and as I exhort myself, let's not allow the threats of our day to turn family Oh, that we would not become foes because of our differences. Because all those differences, whether they be the political, ideological, whatever, sometimes they are significant, but they pale in comparison with the koinonia that's been brought us together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what threatens our koinonia, our fellowship today? What's the solution? Every day we're called to put on the new self and see each other as family and let's let nothing whatsoever change that. Thirdly, our fellowship, our koinonia, bears the cost for community. We see that in verses 17 and 20. In verse 17, we finally get around to the request. Paul says, and he's leading up to this, and he's laying it on thick, right? He says this, receive him, finally. Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. What a statement. Receive Onesimus, Philemon, as you would receive me, Paul. 
Just like you would receive your spiritual father and mentor. Just like you would receive your brother in Christ. Just like you would receive your partner in the gospel of Jesus. Just like you would receive your friend. Just as you would receive your family. Receive Onesimus. But he says this. Because Paul knows that there still might be an existing debt out there. Right? Maybe if I even put up a lot of money to rescue Onesimus. That may be out there. What does Paul do about that? And I'm not even sure that he can afford it. Paul's in prison, right? I'm not sure he can afford it, but he goes out on a limb and he says, verse 18, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. Charge it to me. Friends, community is costly. Why? Because it requires us to forgive one another. It requires us to be reconciled to one another. It requires us to lay down our lives for the sake of another. You see, forgiving one someone and being reconciled to them, it means that I bear the cost of what they did to me by not holding it against them any longer. Sometimes this can be easy, but other times it's so hard. Sometimes this forgiveness that comes through community and the cost to us, it's even painful. But guess what, friends? The cost for community is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the good news of Jesus. Paul never mentions in this letter of Philemon, he never mentions the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Why? Because he doesn't have to. Paul's request at this moment, if he owes you anything, charge it to me. That request is a parable of what Jesus did by bringing those who were once estranged together. It's as if Paul is stretching out his arms in some way, not because he thinks of himself as Messiah, because, hey, look at me, Philemon, Onesimus, I want to bring you two together, and if it costs anything, I'll bear that cost myself, and when I do it, I want you to see the cross of Jesus on display, the one who went to the cross, who paid the ultimate cost for Philemon, for Onesimus, for Paul himself, for you and me, so that we can be a community together. This community is so costly. It was paid for through the blood shed by Jesus Christ on the cross. And Paul, as he stretches out his arms to these two now brothers, says, if there's any cost remaining, charge it to me. Look to Jesus. He's willing to bear the cost, uh, the cost of being Philemon and Onesimus together. This faith is activated through gospel fellowship. Again, this letter that accompanied Philemon and Colossians, Paul writes this, and I love this. Look at this with me. It's on the screen, I think, for you. Colossians 1, 19-20. For in Christ, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And how did he do it? By making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the one who pays the price. And I'm sure Paul's thinking about those words that he just penned in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. And he says, Onesimus, Philemon, I'll bear the cost. Just like our Lord. Be reconciled to one another. Come back to community. It's costly, but it's worth it. If you know the story of, I don't, I don't speak French very well. I try to say it all the time. Les Miserables. Did I say that right in French speakers? I don't know, Regan speaks French in there. All right, good. I speak French Friday, right? <laughs> but there's this great scene in Les Miserables. 
Victor Hugo is the, the writer, and, and the, the, the protagonist, the main character, Jean Valjean, he's been in prison for 19 years and he's finally set free, but he's got nothing. He's got nothing. And this bishop, Bishop Muriel, he brings him into the monastery and they're there and, and, they're, uh, and they're having a meal together. And as Jean Valjean is eating, he just notices all, all these beautiful silverware and all this beautiful stuff. And he starts to covet the stuff as he's eating the food. And that night, as Jean Valjean is sleeping in the house, he, he wakes up in the middle of the night, no one's watching, and he steals all this stuff, and he goes on the streets, thinking that now I can be rich, right? And the police catch him, and they bring him back to the bishop, to his house, and, and they're ready to accuse him. This prisoner that was just set free, we found him, and he stole your stuff. And so now, just, just say the word, and he'll go back to prison, probably for the rest of his life. Maybe he'll be home, who knows? And the bishop does something absolutely amazing. Because he, out of love, because he wants to see this man not just as a foe, but as family. Because he says, I want this man to be in community. He says, oh, my friend, when you took all of that, you left in a hurry in the middle of the night. And I want you to remember that you forgot the most important pieces of candlesticks. And he brings them over and he puts them in the bag and he sends them on his way. And the police can't understand it. They, they feel like something fishy is going on. But, but they can't deny it. The witness says, no, 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 you take it all. What a beautiful picture it is. Jean Valjean is, is transformed forever because somebody paid the cost to bring him into community. In a sense, he's been redeemed. Well, friends, think about it. Robbers, thieves, liars, that's who we were, that's who Onesimus was, and spiritually, that's who Philemon was too. But someone has paid the cost to bring us into community. And that one is named Jesus Christ. This partnership this fellowship, this community that we enjoy, our fellowship activates the faith we share in Jesus. And we see it in this letter of Philemon. Now, I don't know much about church history, but I, I love to think that this story just brought these two together. As Philemon begins to read it, you can almost imagine the tears start to flow down as his heart melts as he hears Paul's words. And I would love to think that there was just this warm embrace that made everybody that was watching for a moment just kind of gasp. Oh, wow. Look at the partnership. Look at the fellowship. Look at the, the love, not a law. Look at the foes who become family. Look at the community that was created even at great cost. What a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings us into Koinonia. Well, what did it mean for Philemon on Monday? <laughs> Receive Onesimus back. What does it mean for us? What does this mean for Monday for us? Well, we saw that our fellowship, our Koinonia, it flows from love, not law. I want to ask you, is your heart resistant toward your brothers and sisters today? You know, sometimes we view church as an event that we attend on Sundays and it's like, I want to slip in, I want to slip out, I, you know, I did my duty, I can go on with the rest of my life. We, we want you to feel the fellowship, the partnership that we have here. We, we want you to be a part of a small group. Oh, I ask, would you soften your heart to be in community with us? Maybe you're at odds with a brother or sister here, or maybe in, in another place. Oh, let not law drive you, because you'll never, you'll never come back into fellowship. But let the love of Jesus melt your heart. Spend some time at Jesus' feet and say, Lord Jesus, if you could love a sinner such as I, 
perhaps I can love my brother or sister before. Let love, not law, lead you. What about foes into family? Every day, friends, we've got to put on the new self. Put on the new self. We've got to see the new self in our brothers and sisters. Every believer, even when they wrong you, guess who they are? Their family. Their family. You know, we can say that we are like family. I don't like to say that. You know why? Because that's not what Paul says. We're not like family. We are family. We are family. Together. I, I love our mission statement. And, and maybe you've forgotten. I try to remind myself all the time. What's the mission of Fairfax Bible Church? To glorify, if you know it, say it with me. To glorify God by making disciples of all nations as we live in loving point of view. As we live in loving community. That's our mission. That's the way we achieve it. This fellowship, this partnership, this koinonia that we have activates the faith we share in Jesus to a watching world. Oh, friends, I want to invite you to put on the new self. As we get ready to go right now, as you shake a hand, as you pray with someone, as you say, have a great week to someone, don't just look at a face. Don't just look at a beautiful head of hair unlike my own. But look at one another and say, there's family. i got to make you laugh at once more, right? It's family. Brothers and sisters. And thirdly, our fellowship don't bears the cost for community. Have you been holding back from bearing the cost to forgive? You know what? They just crossed the line with me. I don't know that I can ever forgive them. I'm so glad Jesus didn't say that to us. Matthew crossed the line. I can never forgive him. He bore the cross. For me, friend, if you're struggling today to bear that cross, would you look to Jesus? Spend time in his feet and ask him to say, Lord, how would you have me follow in your steps to bear the cross, to be a queen with one another? Let's stand as we pray and get ready to close our service. Worship team, come on. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you brought us into Koinonia through the blood of Jesus, this gospel that we celebrate. But Lord, we don't want this just to be a confession from our mouths. We want it to be a life that we live in the everyday stuff of life, that we're following our Savior Jesus, who came to save us not because of a law, but because of love. He came to turn foes into family and into friends. And he is the one who bore the whole cost to bring us into community. Help us follow in his steps. And Lord, perhaps there's someone here today that has felt distant, felt like I can never be brought that close. Oh, that they see the parable laid out in Philemon, a parable that points us to someone far greater than Philemon or Onesimus, and certainly Paul. It points to Jesus himself, the one who bore the cross for us so that we can be brought into the point of view.